Today we're in Luke chapter 2, Luke 2, and we'll read verses 1 to 21. 1 to 21 will be our study, and actually we'll read just a paragraph at a time. Verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, we have already read about the birth of, of John the Baptist and the celebration that took place upon that birth. Now we are reading of the birth of Christ and the celebration and the announcement of this birth of Christ. In verse 1, Luke puts this in history which was his intention from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that everyone might know the exact truth of the things that they have been taught, that he has investigated everything thoroughly because he wants to give not only Theophilus but all readers of the scriptures confidence that these things are historical facts. They actually took place. We're not talking about fictions and legends and myths. We are talking about history. And we all know from history, from Roman and other sources, that there was a Caesar called Augustus. This, this Caesar Augustus who reigned and was probably the best of all the emperors and because there was peace throughout his dominion. Well, this Caesar Augustus, during his time, he issued a decree that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. We do know that Censuses and other kinds of uh, organizations of the people happen when uh, those who dominate lesser kingdoms, the subjugated kingdoms, they want to tax them, they want to solidify their power, they want to control them, they want to make sure that there's peace so that if there's peace, people can work, and if they work, they can earn money, and then when they can earn money, they can give their tax money to the central authority. So this is the reason for the census, to be taken of all the inhabited earth. Well, we notice here it says all the inhabited earth. That is the NASB. But what he means, what Luke means here, he's using a phrase that is not an, uh, an, an unusual phrase. We might think that it's, when it says all the inhabited earth, that it's talking about every place throughout the world wherever people live at the time, 2,000 years ago. But that's not what the phrase means. In context, it doesn't mean that. It basically means all the peoples under the dominion of Caesar Augustus. It means all the people in the Roman Empire. All of those people were made to take this census. They were the ones involved in it. This is what it means. We see an example of these this kind of phrase, a universal sounding phrase, an all-encompassing sounding phrase used of dominions in Daniel chapter 4. 
in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, we have one example of this. We'll see a, a few places in the book of Daniel. Notice Daniel 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, centuries before the Roman Empire, he says in Daniel 4, 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth or in all the land, meaning all the land of my dominion. This is what Nebuchadnezzar does. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar did not address this to people who lived on the other side of the Atlantic because he didn't control them. He has never controlled them, yet we do know people did live on the, on the other side of the Atlantic. He had dominion from Babylon and going as far west and south as Egypt at a certain point in that area of the world. But not beyond that. He didn't have any dominion in Europe. He didn't have any dominion in uh, North America. Uh, he had no dominion, even though people lived in these places. So, this is one example. Another place we might find is in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. And this is a successive king in the Persian Empire, in the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel 6, verse 25. Darius, Darius, in the reign of the Medes and the Persians, he also issues a decree, a proclamation, and notice how he begins it. Daniel 6.25, Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. There he addresses them as well, who were living in all the land, or in all the earth, or in all the land of his dominion. And the Persian Empire did extend farther east, farther than the Babylonians, but it did not go all the way to China. It did not go all the way to Japan. It went farther east as far as the Indus River in modern uh, Pakistan. It went that far, but it did not go even beyond that. Neither did it go beyond and way into Europe. They tried to go into Europe, but it did not ever go into Europe, let alone America. It never went this far, that far west. So, this is what the phrase means. I say this in the first verse, a point of clarification, because we do have people who read the Bible with a skeptical eye. They read the Bible with their, uh, with their pompous views that they can tear apart the Bible and bring it down so that they convince us that it's unreliable. Actually, what the problem is, they don't know how to read in context, and they don't understand history and phraseology. That's the problem. And by the way, in English, we do use universal phrases for certain things, too. For example, when we say the, the baseball championship, what do we call that? We call it the World Series. We call it the World Series. But the various nations of the world are not involved in it. Is Nigeria involved in our World Series? No. Is China involved in our World Series? No. No. But we call it the World Series. <laughs> Because we, we because that's the bonanza, that's the big one, so we give it the we dub it the name world, and that's why it's called the World Series. So these kinds of idioms are used, and that's the point here in the first verse. Verse two. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. First census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now this also this verse has become a verse of dispute. And those who say that the Bible is unhistorical or contradictory to history, in fact, say that there was no census while Quirinius was governor, they say. 
And they say that the date of Quirinius being governor has to do with A.D. 6 and 7, which would have been several years, about 12 years after the birth of Christ. So there is a historical inaccuracy here. That's the allegation. However, there are well-studied historians who say that Quirinius was governor for two brief periods, governor of Syria. And the first one was when it was 6 to 8 BC. 6 to 8 BC was the first time he was, and the second time he was was in AD 6 to 7. So, 8 to 6 BC would quite well fit into the time of Jesus' birth because Jesus' birth is typically dated to somewhere between 4 to 6 BC. So, this fits perfectly with that, that he could have had a census during his reign as governor uh, of Syria, and Syria would include more than our modern Syria, by the way. It would include Judea, because sometimes these designations, they have different ones throughout history. The same name Syria not only encompasses modern Syria, but would have encompassed the, the jurisdiction of that area farther south into Israel, modern Israel and Judea in that area. So this is why the people of the Jews in Judea and in Galilee, where Joseph and Mary lived, that's why they were impacted, because whoever was governor of Syria also controlled the southern region of that area, Israel Judah, Galilee, that area. Verse 3. All were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. They all were doing as they were supposed to do. They were doing it most likely reluctantly because who wants to pay taxes or more taxes? Nobody wants to do that. At least people generally do not want to do that. However, they did proceed to obey the census, to do what they were supposed to do. And they went, everyone to his own city, meaning to his own native city, to his own birthplace, his, where his ancestors had property and had lived for a long, long time. And this would be for Joseph and Mary, both because they were descendants of David, would have been Bethlehem. We know that Bethlehem, from 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17, Bethlehem, was David's native place, and the Messiah was to be the son of David, a descendant of David. They all went, and they went most likely reluctantly. We have to notice, though, that Quirinius and Caesar Augustus, they are unbelievers. They're pagans. They worship idols. They are polytheists. They believe that they themselves, in some sense, are gods or will become gods one day. This is who they are. So they don't have any faith. They don't have anything like that. But God uses evil intentions and evil people with evil intentions in order to goad and to promote His will and even to goad the people of God into making one decision or another. This should not be a surprise to us. The birth of Christ is happening this way because it is God providentially working in nations and working among people, the decisions of their their heart, working in them to accomplish His purpose. 
This should give us some encouragement that God is able to marvelously use His powerful providence to work out circumstances for our benefit. In this case, Christ has to be born. He has to be born a man. He has to be born into the world in order to die for our sins and rise from the dead as the Son sent from the Father. A couple of clear examples, well-known examples, I think will suffice to prove this point, that God uses human circumstances providentially for the good of His people. The first one is Genesis chapter 45. Remember that Joseph, the son of Jacob, was sold as a slave to Egypt. Right? He was sold to you know, Midianite and Ishmaelite uh, traders who were trading and caravanning all the way down from their area in Canaan to Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, they sold Joseph into slavery to uh, an Egyptian. And he finds himself in hard and harsh circumstances. Correct? And eventually, though, God brings him from his low place to a high place and he becomes the ruler of Egypt, the second ruler of Egypt, right under Pharaoh, his right-hand man. Then, eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers who, because of the famine in the land of Canaan had, and Egypt, had to come to Egypt where they heard that there was food. When they come and he discloses himself to them, they are distressed and distraught because they realize now this ruler with whom they have had this dialogue or these dialogues is actually their brother. So it says in verse 4, we'll start in Genesis 45, 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold, you sold, notice, into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So we see here, Joseph knows they sold him. So it was their wicked will and their wicked intentions toward Joseph that made them do what they did. But providentially, God used their evil will to bring about good. A second example of the same is in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. We'll actually start in verse 22. 22 and 23. Acts 2, 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Notice there, Peter accuses them. He says, 
You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Eventually, those words prick them, and later they repent. Some of them repent. In fact, 3,000 of them repent of the many hundreds of thousands that would have been in Jerusalem in those days. So, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Did they sin in putting Christ on the cross? Yes. The Romans sinned, the Jews sinned, the multitudes sinned when they said, crucify him, crucify him, Judas Iscariot. There are all kinds of people who sinned against Christ in that context, and they are to be blamed for it. But good came out of that by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Because God intended to raise him up, and God intended to have his death be a ransom for many, to be a ransom for us. So, this is what's happening to Joseph and Mary. Yes, they have to go through some difficult circumstances, but God is using it not only for their salvation, but for our salvation. Verse 4. And Joseph, back to Luke 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Mary is pregnant with child. She is pregnant with Christ in her. And Joseph and Mary, they leave Nazareth where they had been living and working. We know from, from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, that Joseph was a carpenter. So he was a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. Nazareth called here a city, but it was a very small city. We would say it was a town. But it was a city in Galilee in the northern region outside of the area of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Bethlehem would have been about six miles away from Jerusalem. It was away farther in north in Galilee. And he had resided there presumably for work. Something had happened and that caused him to migrate up there and to settle. But this circumstance caused him to leave that small obscure place, Nazareth, to come to another small place, closer to a big place, to Bethlehem. Now, why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? Well, back in the Old Testament, it was announced that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet Micah, in 700 years B.C., which would be 700 years before these events that we read, Micah prophesied that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, this passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 2 in fulfillment of this same thing. Micah 5 verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Sometimes towns and cities have more than one name. And in this case, both names are given. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Too little to be among the clans of Judah, too little to be among the clans of thousands upon thousands of cities in Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From eternity he has his existence, but also in Bethlehem he will be born. He'll be born in that place. So he is Son of God and Son of Man. 
He's son of God in that he has a divine nature. He is from eternity. And he's also son of man that he has a human nature without sin in that he's born in Bethlehem. God ordained that he would be born in this small, obscure place by these unknown, obscure people. Yes, they are of the lineage of David, but who knows of the lineage of David or why does anybody give attention to it in this period in history? Because they are slaves of the Romans and before that they were slaves of the Greeks and before that they were slaves of the Persians and before that of the Babylonians and before that the Assyrians. So their kingdom of the, 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 the tribes, both the northern tribes and the southern tribes, one event, one disaster, catastrophe of history after another, stripped away their power, uh, in, sometimes in huge chunks, but it happened. Assyrians, Babylonians, and the successive kingdoms did that. So Joseph and Mary, obscure people, Nazareth and Bethlehem, obscure places, God chooses to have his son born in that circumstance. This also is significant because it shows us this truth that God loves using insignificant and ignoble people and circumstances to radiate His glory for His redemption to show from there. An example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that is the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things with, that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, not by his doing and our doing, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God do this? He does this because he's wanting to humble human pride. He wants proud people to realize that they should not have confidence in themselves, nothing good in them, but everything is dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. And this is what he does here. He illustrates it when his own son is born, that he wants to use lowly and insignificant, no-name people to manifest his glory and to be vessels of redemption. Verse... Six verses six and seven, and it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. She is pregnant, and they don't have cars and airplanes, and it would be difficult enough in a car and an airplane to travel while pregnant, but this would be even more difficult to travel by a beast of burden to travel by a donkey or some other animal from one place to another, and even to walk this distance, which would have been miles and, and miles, uh, about 20 or, or more miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, to have to do this while pregnant. And then for the temporary time that they are there in Bethlehem, she gives birth according to schedule, 
according to God's schedule. So not only is the location, but the time is orchestrated by God. And notice the place where he's born, and she has to deliver. Presumably, there are crowds of people there. That's why there is no room for them in the inn. In, in the lodging places that were available for visitors and strangers, all travelers, there wasn't enough room. No room. So they have to go to a manger or a stable. The English word manger does not necessarily convey some place that's smelly and dirty, a place of animals. But when you say the word stable, where cattle are kept, where domesticated animals are kept, then you can think of a place that's dirty and smelly, a place where humans don't like to sleep, and let alone give birth to a child. No one wants to do that there. No woman wants to do that. No husband uh, who loves his wife wants his wife to do that in such a place. But they're forced into this. They are forced into this circumstance, as we said earlier, because by the providence of God, He made it difficult for them because salvation comes through difficulty. It comes through difficulty. It comes through suffering. It came through the suffering of Christ and even the people of God who are a part of the body of Christ make up for the afflictions which are lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Colossians 1. That's what Paul meant. He didn't mean that Jesus' death was insufficient to pay for our sins. What he meant was that as a part of the body of Christ, just as the head suffers, also the rest of us suffer. And this is how they suffered. They suffered like this in order to further illustrate this reality that we all have to undergo affliction before there's exaltation. Humiliation comes before exaltation. Humility comes before glory. This, that's the way of the Christian life. That's the way it is when we are converted, and that's the way it is throughout our Christian life. And ultimately, when we come and face Christ on the day of judgment, that's what will happen there. Ultimately, we'll have our eternal glorification at that time. But the rest of the world will, who were proud, they will be brought down. Verse 8. Verses 8 to 14. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the, the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. All right, here in the same region, in this area of Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, in this area, then an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. In this region where the shepherds were at night, and at night, this indication might be an indication that either it was around the time of October or early November that this happened because the rains in this area of the world happen 
around November and December and January in that time period more than uh, earlier in the fall. So they would, and they also had the custom, when the rains come, they bring their sheep from the fields into their barns and into their stables in areas where they are protected from being out there in the cold and in the rain all the time. So this is why some scholars believe that this was likely happening in October or, no, or November, probably not December, probably not December. And at night, of course, nighttime is a time when one can easily be startled. One, one's keeping an eye out for the sheep and the wolves and whatever other kinds of animals of, of prey are out there looking for sheep. So they would be naturally alert and looking for danger. So what happens? An angel suddenly stood before them. Suddenly. Angels are able to do this. Remember Christ said in Matthew 26, 53, when he was being arrested, can I not at once appeal to my father and he can bring 12 legions of angels to come help me? Remember Jesus said that? He said that so they can appear just like that. Well, one appears and naturally they are frightened. Because not only does the angel appear, but the glory of the Lord shone around them. That is, a brilliant light appeared at night, in the middle of the night, when you only you can see the moon and the stars, which are brilliant themselves. Especially when we go to a rural place, you can see the moon more brilliantly, and especially all the stars. You can see many of them away from the city. So they, being out there in the field, they see suddenly this brilliant glorious light of God because the angels are coming from God naturally therefore they present the glory of God to them so they're they are afraid they're terribly frightened but God did this yes to get their attention but not to make them miserable and not to put them to death because God is able to do so when he appears many times God or when the glory of God appears the people are afraid that they might die. Jacob was amazed that he did not die in Genesis chapter 32. Have I seen God face to face and yet lived? Even Hagar in Genesis 16, she said, Have I remained alive after seeing him? She's amazed. So this happens many times throughout the Old Testament. But here, he didn't have that intention. He had the intention of giving them good news. So verse 10, he says, And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. When God gets our attention and he's presenting good news, he tells us, don't be afraid. It's okay. You won't die. And instead, the good news. The good news is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. So the word gospel or good news or glad tidings, various synonyms are used to to say the same truth. That is, Christ is here, Christ is born, Christ is here for your redemption. He dies on the cross, He rises from the dead, so that whoever believes in Him, turns from their sins, is forgiven of sin. This is the purpose of this announcement. And this should bring great joy, because this is the hope of all the ages. The hope of all the ages from the time of Adam, in Genesis 3.15, and all the other messianic promises in the Old Testament, and even for us, 
as we look at the fulfillment of those promises, but also in the future for the complete experience of all those promises. This is to bring great joy to us. This is the purpose of the good news. The purpose of the good news for the people of God is to bring about joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 Or, a fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, so forth. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. This is what it should produce in us. Because we know we are reconciled to God. We know we have the peace of God. We know we have the forgiveness of God. We know we have His mercy and grace and love because we're reconciled to Him through His Son. That's why it brings great joy. I've implied that this is for all the people of God, all the elect, all the redeemed. That's how I think we should take that phrase in verse 10. Which shall be for all the people. All the people means all the elect people, all the redeemed people, all the believers, all who are saved and redeemed. That's what it means. It does not mean all the people who ever live, because there were many people in the world who had already died by this point. And it cannot mean even all the wicked people who never repent, because they never have great joy when they hear the gospel. They don't want great joy. In fact, when they hear this gospel of grace, they say, why do I need His grace? I'm good enough. I don't need it. Why do I need to believe that He died from, for my sins? Why do I need to believe any of that? stuff. All of that is ridiculous anyways. It's fiction and I'm good enough. I'm fine enough. I'll be just fine. If there's a God, then I'll be fine and He'll let me into heaven. If there isn't a God, then I'm fine. I live my life the way I wanted to and you guys believe in foolishness. That's the way the wicked think. So they will never have great joy. They won't have great joy because they don't want this great joy because they don't think they need this great joy. Therefore, I think it's evident, and we'll see a little more evidence of this, that this great joy which shall be for all the people means all of us, all of the saints, all of the elect and the redeemed. Verse 11. For, this is the reason, because we acknowledge this. For today in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, not the city of David, his place of rulership, which would have been Jerusalem or Mount Zion specifically, not that, but city of David in terms of his birthplace. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is what we all acknowledge, that we need a Savior, someone to save us from our sins. And we need someone to rule our life. That's why we acknowledge that he is Christ the Lord. And we also know that Christ is the anointed one in the Old Testament who was anointed with the oil. Who was anointed? The prophet, the priests, and the kings were anointed with oil. And he, Christ, is the supreme example of a prophet, priest, and king on our behalf. This is why it says he is called Christ. Christ means anointed one. Christ or Messiah mean anointed one. This is what we have to know. We have to know that he's a savior. That means he has to die to save us from something. He has to be perfect and die on the cross to save us from something. Who he is, he is Christ, prophet, priest, and king, the son of the Most High God, as it said in uh, Luke uh, one thirty-five. 
Son of the Most High, and that he is the Lord. The Lord is the ruler and the master of the whole universe, and he is that providentially, he is that by creation, but he is also that for us by redemption. Because we used to be slaves of our sin, our own will, but now we are slaves of righteousness. We are slaves of Christ, where true freedom resides. I'd rather be a slave of Christ than to be a slave of anybody else. That's the way redemption considers the person and work of Christ. Now on that point, that's much lacking today. People like to say Savior without including the fact that Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. Therefore, our sins are reprehensible to God and must be repented of. See, that aspect of the term Savior is missing in many gospel proclamations today. Another one is Lord. There are people who think, and I have heard this even recently within the last month, someone tell me that he believes that he received Christ as Savior and one day he will receive Him as Lord. And he knows that he has eternal life and he's okay with God and he doesn't have to come to church right now. Hmm. That's what he told me. Hmm. He told me he received Him as Savior hmm. but not as Lord. One, one day that may happen and I'm okay with God. God's good with me. I'm good with God. Everything's okay. Basically, that's what he told me. He actually used that phrase. He received him as Savior, and one day he will be his Lord. But I had to tell him, it, it doesn't work that way. If, if he's your Savior, he's also your Lord. If he's your Lord, he's also your Savior. It, that's the way it works. But also, another aspect is missing, and that is Christ. Christ as Son of God and Son of Man. There are some, among those who claim Christianity who say that Christ was just a man and a regular man. Just a man and even that, a regular man. That means that he sinned. He sinned. And there are others who say uh, that, no, 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 he, he was not a man. He was some kind of div uh, divine person without a body. There are a few people who do that too claiming Christianity, that he did not have a physical body, he just had a spirit, and he appeared as a ghost or a phantom. It appeared that he had a body, he did not really have a body. So they give him some aspect of divinity, though not full aspect of it, but they go along that road in a wrong way and deny his humanity. We cannot do that. Jesus is both Son of God and Son of Man without sin. He has a divine nature and a human nature without sin. Now, verses 12 and following, the angel wants to buttress the faith of the shepherds. He wants to bolster the faith of these shepherds. After all, the shepherds might be thinking, why are we receiving this news? And... When the shepherds go and tell other people, which they will do later, the shepherds will be an unlikely messenger. Unlikely messengers of this news. They will be unlikely. So here, the angel will be helping them to have confidence in what they have heard and help them 
to proclaim this news to others. That's what, what he's about to do here. He and they, actually. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. This will be a sign. What's a sign? A sign is a miraculous occurrence or a miraculous deed providentially by God in ways that are humanly impossible to know unless it is God who has the knowledge or God who has that power. So, a sign for you. By the way, in, in the book of John, John loves to use this word sign. And in fact, he calls it that in John 20, 30, and 31. He said many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may, have, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So, a sign is a miracle pointing to a truth of God. And here, you will find a baby wrapped in, a, in cloths and lying in a manger. Well, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger or stable, you will find this baby there. Well, babies aren't naturally normally born in stables, but they're going to find one there. They're going to find one there, and it's going to be an unusual circumstance. So right there, the, the angel is telling them, look out for this. It's going to happen just as we said. And not only that, verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the, of the heavenly host praising God and saying, then to vindicate this one angel, after all, we could hear, someone might think, it's just one angel, maybe it was the devil. It's just one angel, maybe it was one of his, the devil's demons. Maybe that. But notice here, it's suddenly a multitude of the heavenly hosts. A multitude, an innumerable amount of the heavenly hosts. They're called heavenly hosts, hosts in, in terms of army, because there are armies that God has in heaven. Again, Matthew 26, 53, Jesus said that he could ask his father and his father could at once bring to his disposal 12 legions of angels. Many, many angels he could call upon to deliver him from the arrest that was happening to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this case, though, these angels do appear suddenly, but they appear in order to vindicate the one angel, to vindicate that he's telling the truth. And how do we know? Because it says... They're praising God. Satan and demons do not love to praise God and give Him the glory. They want the glory and they want to destroy people. They don't want to put the focus on God, the true God, and praise Him and glorify Him. So here, the heavenly host praising God and what do they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. Remember, in Matthew 4, Satan tempts Jesus, and he wants the glory. And he wants the glory for himself. But here, these angels say, glory to God in the highest. This further gives the shepherds confidence that they are seeing a real vision, a truthful one, that this is coming from God, because the glory goes to God. It also reminds us here that though we have been speaking of redemption, which is a big part of the coming of Christ. Ultimately, whether it's the redemption of the people of God 
or the reprobation or the retribution, punishment of the wicked people all have as their goal the glory of God. This should remind us that many people think that God's supreme and ultimate and highest purpose in creating the world was to save as many people as possible. That His love and grace and mercy are supposed to be front and center. But that's not biblically true. What's supposed to be front and center is the glory of God. And God's glory is manifested by redeeming some people and <coughs> punishing all the rest. He can be glorified by punishing people on the day of judgment. Uh, Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 explains this, that he receives glory by having a day of judgment. And you might also recall, if you have read the book of Ezekiel in, in recent times, that often when punishment occurs, Ezekiel says, then they will know that I am the Lord. They refuse to acknowledge me as Lord now, but once the punishment occurs, then they will know that I am the Lord. One such example in Ezekiel is Ezekiel 35.15 As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Mm -hmm. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And even we have this in the New Testament. The familiar passage in Philippians 2, 5-11 when it says, Every knee will bow, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, if every knee is going to do that, that means the knees of the redeemed will do that, and the, knee, the knees of the reprobate, the unredeemed, the wicked people will do that. They're all going to say that He is Lord. Now they deny that He's Lord, but they will at that time. This is further proof, in other words, that when it says glory to God in the highest, this glory is God's ultimate purpose in the creation of the world, to glorify Himself, whether through those who are redeemed or those who are recreated and punished for their sins. However, in verse 14, he further says, or they further say, that peace is offered on earth. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. This phrase is not to be taken to mean that peace is to be received and given to every person on the earth. That cannot be the case because there were many people who had already lived and died by the time this announcement came and there is no peace for them. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah says. So there is no peace ever for them. And so what, what he's saying here, in, or they are saying in verse 14, has to do with peace for the people of God. In fact, notice carefully that phrase according to the NASB, which I believe best renders the original language. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. There's only peace with whom, with the people on the earth, with whom God is pleased. And God is only pleased 
to give peace to those who are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 explains how we have redemption in Christ even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. And this peace includes Jew and Gentile who were at odds with each other and who were at odds with God in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. The rest of chapter 2 explains that now we all in Christ have peace with God and peace with one another when we rightly relate to God through Christ. Verse 15. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Notice here, they want to go straight to Bethlehem. Notice, right away they want to obey. In verse 16, And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. In haste. They went straight to Bethlehem and they came in haste. They here, they have a confirmation, this is God speaking through this, these angels, this is God, and they want to obey immediately. They don't hem and haw, they don't scratch their heads, they don't wallow in unbelief for a, a period. These lowly people, shepherds, looking after animals in the dark of night, they are convinced that God has spoken to them and they want to obey right away. This is the nature of true obedience and true faith. Not half-hearted obedience, not delayed obedience, nothing like that. We can be reminded of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God gave King Saul a clear command to destroy the Amalekites for their infliction of punishment and warfare against Israel back in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. So in retribution, Saul, centuries later, is supposed to punish them. And God clearly tells Saul to do it. But Saul did not definitively and clearly carry out the command of God. And God punished Saul for that. But not here. In this case, the shepherds, they hear the word of God and they want to do the word of God immediately. Exactly as he told them. And they come to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Verse 17. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which they had been told about this child. So they report everything that had just previously happened, whatever they had uh, known. In verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They're all marveling at what the shepherds are saying because they're receiving them. They're not rejecting them because they can't immediately dismiss this kind of thing out of hand. They have to consider and reflect upon what's going on. So that's good. Verse 19, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary, in, in her case, she's listening to everything. She knows what Elizabeth said. She knows what Elizabeth said about what uh, Zacharias, her husband, said. She knows what the angel Gabriel said to her. Mary knows all this. And by this point, Mary also knows, according to Matthew chapter 1, what the angel said to Joseph. Don't divorce Mary. Marry her and because she, the, the Christ will be born through her. 
This is what the angel said to Joseph. She knows all these things, and now she has this report from the shepherds about what the angels have said. But what does she do? She treasures up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It appears to me that Mary, in order to make sure that she is not seen as a, a boisterous and, and talkative mouth, she wants to, she has had great privileges bestowed upon her. So it's easy to be easily misunderstood. The moment she starts saying, hey, this is what happened and that happened, this, this one said this about me and this, one, this other one said this about me, that her pride could well up. Her pride could well up and people would see that and say, why is God using this vessel? Why is God using this proud young woman? But I think what's going on with Mary, according to that verse, is 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, verse 4. Addressing the wives here, it says, But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. You see, in this case, that we have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband or at least a disobedient husband, according to verse 1. So the wife when she opens her mouth having greater wisdom than the husband because he's disobedient to God, she could easily be misunderstood by the husband. So what should she do? She should just keep quiet and let her godly behavior be the megaphone that gets the attention of the husband, that gets the ear and the eyes, the attention of the husband. So I think in the same way, that's what Mary does. She's treasuring up all these things because as a godly woman, even though she's young, she's keeping quiet about them and waiting for everything to take place in due time. They will take place in due time. But the shepherds, on the other hand, they do the right thing, which is verse 20. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. They go back as a group and they glorify and praise God among all the people. They say, this is what God has done. This is what God declared. This is what the angel said to us. Then we went to Mary and Joseph and Jesus and we found it exactly like this. And then we uh, compared notes and they told us things. We told them things. All these miracles are taking place. This is the Christ. This is what they're doing. And they're saying, glorify and praise God for all of it. Okay, then verse 21 Eight days later, verse 21, And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The name was given according to Matthew 1, 18-25, before he was conceived in the womb, and also according to Luke chapter 1, and verse, verses 32-35. to 35. Before he's conceived, he's given this name, uh, Jesus by the angel, but now he's named. As was the custom with John the Baptist and others, on the eighth day, the day of circumcision, that's when the name was given and announced, the name of the Son. But we might ask, why was he circumcised? Wasn't circumcision 
to be carried out upon eight-day-old male children because it's a sign of their uncleanness and their, their uncircumcision of heart, which is upon them at birth, and their need for a circumcised heart, figuratively speaking, metaphorically speaking. Jesus did, was not born in sin, and Jesus had no need of a circumcised heart. It was a symbol, in other words, of redemption and the new covenant in the Abrahamic circumcision from Genesis 17, 17, 12, from there onward. Well, the reason for this, just as the reason for Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, was to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. As it says in Matthew 3 and verse 15, John the Baptist knows and tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized, and baptism is for those who need redemption, who need their sins forgiven. Jesus knew all this, so he tells John, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. It was necessary, in other words, for Jesus to be obedient in all things written in the law to show that he was an obedient keeper of the law. He did not transgress any of the law. His parents did not. The rabbis who conducted the circumcision, they did not. None of the witnesses disobeyed. They all did what they were supposed to do for Jesus on the eighth day. And Jesus did whatever he was supposed to do throughout his life. Jesus, in another example, he had no need of being tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights by the devil. But he did that for our benefit. He did that so that he would keep perfect obedience and show that he could keep and did keep perfect obedience, that he was sinless, perfect, spotless for our redemption. He kept all the law for our redemption. This is why he was circumcised. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.